We're really honored that you're watching our program again this morning. And if you'll stay tuned for the next 30 minutes, I promise you that I'll have some things to say that I believe will be of interest to everyone in this television audience. So call your friends and neighbors and tell them about the television program and keep watching yourself. And we are grateful that you take the time to be with us each Sunday morning. We always invite our television audience to worship with us at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ, 2201 Rainbow Drive in Gadsden. Our Bible study is at... 9.30 this morning, our worship hour at 10.30. Our evening worship hour is at uh, 6 o'clock p.m. Our midweek Bible study is 7 o'clock. I'll be away today, beginning a gospel meeting in Winter Garden, Florida, and Brother Steve Worley will be preaching in my absence, and you'll be, I'm certain, uh, edified by hearing Brother Worley preach. So worship with us at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ today, if it's at all possible. I want you to open your Bibles with you to Psalms, the 40th chapter, the second verse, which will be our text for this lesson this morning. For David says, he brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. Now, I believe as strongly as any preacher that in our preaching there must be some reproving and rebuking. When Paul wrote to the young evangelist Timothy in 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, beginning with the first verse, he said, when Jesus would appear in his kingdom at his appearing to judge the quick and the dead, and he was to preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. He was told to reprove and to rebuke. And certainly we couldn't be declaring the whole counsel of God if we didn't do any reproving and rebuking. But on the other hand, I believe also it is very important for us preachers to preach from such texts as I'm using this morning. Psalms, the 40th chapter, the second verse, where David is praising God and thanking God for what God did for him. Well, as much as David had to praise God for in that dispensation, we who are Christians in the New Testament dispensation, David wasn't a Christian, a child of God, that the blood of Jesus Christ went back and covered his sins because he, he obviously was in a covenant relationship with the Lord, even though he made mistakes, he always repented of those mistakes. But David, though he was a child of God, never had the privilege of living in the Christian dispensation. That's when Jesus said that, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. I believe what he meant by that is, is that we in the kingdom of our Savior, we who are New Testament Christians have greater advantages than John the Baptist or anybody that lived on the other side of the law. So if David saw the need to praise God and saw that the uh, pleasure and privilege and honor in praising God and his dispensation, how much more should we praise him in our dispensation for what he has done for us? Jesus said in John 10 and 10 that he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. John, the 16th chapter, the 33rd verse, he said, In the world you shall know tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. I have come that you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but Jesus overcame the world. Paul said in Philippians 4 and 7 that he had found the peace that passes all understanding. So there is much for us to share with people and tell people about the peace that we've found through Jesus Christ and the hope that we've found through Jesus Christ. Now, hear me out on this. I don't believe in testifying as such. The reason that I don't believe in testifying, or at least what the world considers testifying, is because anybody can testify to anything, and it doesn't really amount to much, doesn't mean much. You could bring, I'm certain, a Buddhist, a person who worships Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, and I'm certain you could put him before an assembly of people and tell him to testify pertaining to what Siddhartha Gautama has done for him, and he'd be able to do that. And he'd probably be able to tell you a lot of things that he thinks Siddhartha Gautama has done for him. I'm certain if you'd bring an Oriental person before an assembly of people and tell, ask that Oriental person to testify as to what Confucius has done for him, I'm certain he'd be able to testify. 
and tell you things that he believes Confucius has done for him. You bring many people that uh, I'm personally acquainted with before an audience of people and have them ask them to testify what Mary has allegedly done for them, and they would be able to testify along those lines. My uh, cousin's wife up in Michigan, who has uh, for her patron saint, St. Philomena, the religion that I came out of, many people have what they call patron saints, and they pray through those patron saints and have a special relationship with those patron saints. Well, now, my cousin's wife, I've heard her. She can testify as to what St. Philomena has allegedly done for her, but now here, for her, but now here's the irony. According to the hierarchy itself, St. Philomena never existed. They came out a number of years ago and pointed out that St. Christopher never existed, St. Philomena never existed, St. Philomena was nothing but the figment of somebody's imagination. So here's a woman who can testify to what a person who never even lived allegedly has done for her. People who could testify to what Mary has done for them. Mary can't hear their prayers. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 and 5 that there is but one mediator between God and man, and that's the Son, Jesus. And Jesus said in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father except through me. So when people testify pertaining to what Mary has done for them, it really is meaningless because Mary hasn't done anything for them. Jesus is the Savior. So what does testifying mean. It doesn't really amount to anything, and anyone can testify to just about anything which they choose to testify to. But now, I do believe that Christian people should be telling others of the joys of Christianity, the hope that we have as Christians, what Jesus has done for us. I don't know what you call that. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to get before an assembly of people and do that. I think we can do that in our everyday lives and in our conversations with people and our efforts to lead people to the Lord, because Jesus, friends and brethren, what he's done for every child of his, every New Testament Christian, is he's redeemed us. He's cleansed us of our sins. He died in our stead. When I was a little boy, I used to go to the movies on Saturday often. It used to cost a dime to go to the movie, and you could buy a bag of peanuts for a nickel, so your parents would give you a quarter, and boy, you'd be all set for the day. You'd go to the movie, and you'd have 15 cents for three bags of peanuts, and you'd stay there, and you'd watch these movies over and over. Well, they used to have a lot of movies about the Okefenokee Swamp, if many of you in my generation, my age, will remember. And very often in this swamp, somebody would wander into it, and they would inadvertently wander into some quicksand, and they would start sinking. Well, all of the suspense of the movie would center around the idea of whether somebody was going to come along and rescue this man who was sinking in the quicksand. He would try to extricate himself, try to free himself from the quicksand, and he just couldn't do it. The the more he tried to extricate himself, the more he tried to free himself from the quicksand, the faster he sunk. It took somebody, usually in the movie, not always. I can remember sometimes they'd go down in that quicksand. All you'd see is their hat sitting on the top. But most of the time, a savior would come along and they would extend to that person a rope or a branch or something and pull them to safety. Now, the rope or the branch that the person used, that isn't what saved the individual that was sinking in the quicksand. It took the Savior to save him. The rope and the branch are inanimate objects, and the rope and the branch have no power to save anybody within themselves. But themselves, the salvation came through the man who used the rope or the branch as the instrument to save the individual who was sinking in the quicksand. And the individual had to reach out and take a hold of that rope or take a hold of that branch. And when he was pulled to safety, he would thank the person who extended the branch or extended the rope to him and told him to take a hold of it and then pulled him to safety. Now, now that's sort of an analogy that David has drawn in Psalms 40 and 2. He says he was sinking in the mire in the clay, not literal mire in clay, but the mire in clay of sin. And God rescued him from that sin. Every person on the face of this earth without Jesus Christ 
is sinking in the depths and the mire and the degradation of sin. Without hope and without God in this world. Strangers from the covenant of promise, or promise, just living without God and living without hope. They need the Savior, and the Savior is Jesus. Now here we are sinking in this mire, this quagmire of sin, and Jesus comes along after dying for our sins, and he says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Jesus says, I want to pull you out of that quagmire of sin. I want to pull you out of all of the of the evilness of sin, the horribleness of sin, the mire and the clay of sin. All you have to do is take the rope that I'm extending to you. Belief and repentance and baptism play the same role in our salvation that a rope would play when the individual comes along to pull somebody out of literal quagmire, literal quicksand. Jesus comes along and he says in a spiritual sense, you believe in me, you repent of your sins and you'll be baptized in my name and I'll pull you out of the quagmire of sin and you'll be a redeemed people. Now the belief or the repentance or the baptism in and of itself, that isn't what saves us. Baptism and the waters of baptism, friends and brethren, is inanimate object, has no power whatsoever in and of itself. The water in baptism in and of itself is no different than any water that you find anywhere else on the face of this earth. It's simple, plain, H-T-O. No magical powers in it. No special uh, therapeutical powers in it. Nothing in it. It's just water. But Jesus Christ uses baptism as the instrument to save you and me, to save everyone who has enough faith in him to believe that he's a son of God, repent of their sins, and obey him in baptism. Just as that person sinking in the quagmire of the mud and the clay and the quicksand must have enough faith in the individual who's extending them a rope to reach out and take a hold of that rope and that person pull them to safety, so must we, must, so, so must we have enough faith in Jesus to believe and to repent and to obey him in baptism so that he can redeem us. In 1 Peter, the first chapter, beginning with the 18th verse, Peter says, You are redeemed, not by corruptible things such as silver and gold, which you received from the vain conversation and traditions of your fathers, but by the precious blood of Jesus, the Lamb without blemish and the Lamb without spot. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 and 21, again, Peter saying, The like figure whereunto baptism doth now also even save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. So Jesus wants to save us. He tells us in order for him to save us, we must reach out and take that rope. We must believe. We must repent. We must be baptized. And then Jesus redeems us through his blood. And that's something that every child of God, every New Testament Christian, every person who's been born again in the water and the spirit should share with the whole world what Jesus has done for him and the hope that he has in Christ. We've been redeemed, friends and brethren, of healed, not necessarily physically, but of our sins, healed in a spiritual sense. Now, could Jesus heal us physically? Why, certainly he could. You know, in biblical days, friends and brethren, Jesus, God healed miraculously. Now, the reason that God healed miraculously in miracles, we mean by the word miracle in this context, that which superseded or transcend nature, transcended nature. That was which was beyond nature. God, in biblical days, superseded and transcended nature with his miracles. He healed people miraculously. Somebody who never walked a step in his entire life in first uh, in Acts of third chapter, forty years, hadn't walked simply upon Peter's command to take up that bed and walk. Leap with joy, healed instantaneously. The dead were raised, the blind were made to see, the lepers were healed, miracles were performed, the winds and the seas were stilled. God 
performed many miracles. Under the Old Testament dispensation, they were fed with manna from heaven. Water was taken out of rocks. All of that was done, friends and brethren, or drawn from rocks. All of that was done to confirm the word. As Jesus in Mark, the 16th chapter, just before ascending back into heaven in his resurrected form, said to the disciples of the apostles, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. He then ascended back into the heavens where he sits on the right-hand side of his Father. They, the apostles, went everywhere preaching the word, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. The miracles of biblical times were performed in order to confirm the word. Now, John says in John 20 and 31, many other signs Jews truly did in front of the disciples are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and through that belief have life in his name. So the miracles have been confirmed. They're recorded for us. They're in the Bible. There's no longer any need for God to work the way that he did in biblical times. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 and 10, Love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is to come, that which is in part shall be done away with. So the more doesn't work today the way he worked in biblical times because there was a reason for him working that way, a specific purpose. The, the, the command and the powers were given to a specific people, the apostles, at a specific time, biblical time. Now, the purpose has been fulfilled. The apostles are no longer here, and the biblical times have passed. So those kind of miracles are not in effect for people today. But because many people still believe in those type miracles, many problems have confronted the Christian religion. You know why Christianity is in trouble today, and it is in some trouble, friends and brethren? One of the major reasons, as far as I'm concerned, is... All of these tele-evangelists that are misleading and duping so many people and causing the world to laugh at and to ridicule and to mock Christianity. You see, the world doesn't say or know that a preacher from the Church of Christ is different than uh, somebody out there that uh, claims to be a faith healer and is taking money from poor widows and living in the kind of uh, unbelievable luxury that even some kings and queens uh, don't have access to. And everybody in the world thinks that all preachers are the same, all religions are the same, that we're all in the same hopper, all in the same basket. Therefore, it has become increasingly difficult to reach people with the pure, unadulterated gospel because people think that all preachers are just out after their money. I don't know if you saw this man that was interviewed on um, Crossfire here last week by this uh, Mike, uh, forget what his name is, he sometimes substitutes for this Tom Bradley, I think his name is. But anyway, Mike, this Mike was asking this preacher how he possibly sanctioned the idea in his mind, condoned the idea that he lived in a $600,000 home, had driven up until just recently a Rolls Royce, now I guess he drives a Lincoln, had owned a $300,000 speedboat that he claimed he only had $10,000 $10,000 in, but anyway, lived in almost unbelievable luxury when this gentleman, this Mr. Mike, could present to him letters that he had written that they had received from this lady that he had duped out of money's attorney, in which he claimed that in the middle of the night God woke him up and told him to write this letter to this individual, to this lady, and she was to give him her money. It didn't make any difference whether she had to go to the bank to get it or whether she had to borrow it or whether she had to mortgage her home. Anyway, he took... This woman's last $21,000, if I remember it, and I think the last $6,000 at one time, and drove her to the bank to get her to write, to, to turn over her money to him. And this woman is living 
in squalor, living in abject squalor. This preacher is living in a $600,000 home, living a life of luxury that almost staggers imagination. He's pleading with this woman, demanding from this woman that she give him her last cent while she's living in abject poverty. Well, the interviewer asked this gentleman how he justified that. You know what his answer was? He said, well, I'm worthy of my labor. Labor is worthy of his hire. He said, I'm good at what I can do. It's the American way that I should uh, prosper if I'm good at what I do. Then he said, Jesus, when he was born, the wise men brought him gifts. And when he died, he was buried in a wealthy tomb, a wealthy man's tomb. That's the biblical answer that this man gave the interviewer, trying to justify the fact that he was begging for money from people who couldn't afford it, and he was taking a great portion of that money to live in almost unbelievable luxury. Oh, friends and brethren, if that doesn't hurt the Christian religion, I don't know what it would take to hurt the Christian religion. I wish some of these interviewers interviewing some of these so-called faith healers knew something about the Bible so they could respond to those kind of ridiculous statements that are made in order to defend what they're doing. What does wise men bringing Jesus as an infant gifts, and what does Jesus being born in a wealthy man's tomb after he was dead have to do with people pleading for money, almost demanding money from those who are not in a position to give it, from widows and people on fixed incomes while they're living in almost unbelievable luxury. What does that have to do with these preachers today? Jesus, when he was on earth, said that the foxes have their holes, the birds have their nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay its head, Matthew 8, 20. Bible scholars tell us that Jesus went throughout his entire ministry wearing one robe, grew up in a home that didn't even have floors in it, never had anything of a of an of a, earthly sense that was of a material uh, blessing or material wealth. Jesus had nothing. Lived a poor, poor man. Apostle Paul didn't live in great luxury. He was beaten and mocked and persecuted for what he preached and what he believed. In 2 Corinthians 11, chapter, the 24th verse, he said on five different occasions he was beaten with 40 lashes, save one. Thrice was he beaten with rods. Once was he stoned. Thrice was he shipwrecked. Day and a night in the deep. In peril from within and in peril from without. Over in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, the 4th chapter, beginning with about the ninth verse, he said, We're fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, and we are despised. And even at this present hour, we do both hunger and thirst and have no certain dwelling place and being naked, laboring with our own hands, laboring with our own hands, being persecuted, we endure it. Being defamed, we entreat it. We are made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things under this present day. Does that sound, friends and brethren, like Jesus Christ and the apostles lived in almost unbelievable luxury while they themselves went out and took money under almost any pretenses from people who couldn't afford to give it? Friends and brethren, what is being done to the Christian religion today by these charlatans and Please forgive me for being so concise, but that's exactly the way I feel about many of these men. I'm not saying they're all dishonest, but there's far too many of them that are flat-out charlatans that are interested in nothing but, pe but people's money. In the books, The Grapes of Wrath, written by John Steinbeck, he talks about the Jody family being in one of these encampments that was self-governed, that the people in the encampment made the rules, they elected a committee, and the committee made the rules, and... These people are in this encampment, and they're really going through hard times. If you've ever read that book, it's a classic. And those people were starving to death, literally starving to death. While some, And there were many of them sick. While some faith healers wanted to conduct uh, some faith healing meetings, some services in the camp. And the boy, there was a lot of candidates to be healed in that camp. Well, the committee met, and they said they'd be glad to have the faith healers come in and conduct these services, but there would be just one stipulation.
That would be that they would not be allowed to pass the collection plate because those people were not in a condition to be able to give any money. Under those circumstances, not one single solitary faith healer entered that camp and conducted the service. John Steinbeck had faith healers figured out a long time ago, friends and brethren. I've said for years, you eliminate the passing of the collection plate at faith healing meetings and you'd eliminate the faith healing meeting just that quickly, just that fast. These people that are living in almost unbelievable luxury and out pleading and begging and telling people that the Lord's appeared to them in the middle of the night and telling them to write letters to these poor people and these poor people are to give them everything they have. I'll tell you what, friends and brethren, there's been very few things in all of history that have brought greater reproach on true Christianity because so many people associate true gospel preachers with those kind of charlatans and those kind of people that are duping the public. The Jim Baker case. Let me deal with that for just a moment. People ask the question, is Jim Baker feigning his illness here and his so-called mental problems? I don't know. I, him and God know, and hopefully the psychiatrists that examine him will be able to determine whether he's faking or not. But let me say this about Jim Baker. You know, I could have sympathy for Jim Baker. He made some terrible mistakes. But don't forget, he was confronted with tremendous temptation. He had access to all of this money, and he couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle the temptation. And you put a whole lot of people in that condition, they wouldn't be able to handle the temptation. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 and 10, the love of money is the root of all evil. It would someone having coveted after have pierced themselves through with many sorrows and have erred from the faith. I've said for years that even in the Lord's church, all preachers should be under an eldership and they should negotiate with that eldership their wages and they should be paid a fair wage, a wage in which they can educate their families, in which they can retire comfortably and a decent wage. I'm all for that. But I have always said that money should not be sent to preachers individually because it puts them in two, in a tempting situation. That contributions to preachers should all be made through elderships and that they should have their pay and their salary negotiated with that eldership. Well, here's Jim Baker and a lot of these tele-evangelists that have access to all of this money, literally millions and millions of dollars, and they can't handle it. They can't resist the temptation. So they wind up using that money or misusing that money. Now, I can understand Jim Baker's sin. I can understand his mistake. Here's what I don't understand about the Jim Bakers of our society. He insists he did nothing wrong. He insists that he had every right to use that money the way he used it. Every right to go to Hawaii and buy and get the most expensive hotel rooms, $500 or $1,000 a night, whatever they charge for those most expensive hotel rooms, to buy shoes over $1,000 a pair, to have his plumbing made out of gold, to air condition his doghouses, to live a life of luxury that puts kings and queens to shame when he's raising the money under the pretense of using this money to spread the gospel of Christ. And poor people, people on fixed incomes, people living in abject poverty, people living in squalor, are sending their last cent to these men. And these men are using the money to live lifestyles that are so luxurious that it puts some kings and queens to shame. That, friends and brethren, brings terrible reproach on Christianity. Because though those people don't represent the truths of this Bible, the world doesn't know that, and the world thinks of them as true Christians. Well, somehow, in some way, we have got to get across to the people that there are preachers who aren't out to get people's money. Some of you people have been watching me on this television program for, what, about 12 years now. 
You know you've never heard me ask for a dime from anyone. And on a couple of occasions when people have sent me money, I've sent it back to them. We're not after your money. You can come to a Church of Christ services 365 days a year, and you'll never see the collection plate passed at any other time except on the first day of the week when brethren are told to give as they've been prospered and to give willingly to support the church. That's the only time the collection plate has ever passed. Church of Christ preachers, and I'll speak for myself now, negotiate a wage with the eldership. I'm paid a wage, a pay a salary just like you are. I take from that salary and contribute to the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ just the same way that every other brother over there does. I make sacrifices in my giving the way many of the other brethren over there do. We're not... Most of us now from the Church of Christ asking people to give so that we can take their money and live in luxury while they make sacrifices. We don't see the money. I don't ever, I've never counted the money in the collection plate. I've never seen the money from the collection plate. I'm paid a salary, just like you're paid a salary. And I work and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ under the supervision of a group of elders that have jurisdiction over me, and I negotiate that salary with them, and they pay me what they consider to be a fair wage. That's the way it's done in the Church of Christ. We don't have access to all of that money. You're not going to see any Church of Christ preacher taking the money that's contributed to the church and living in a $600,000 home, buying a Rolls Royce or $300,000 speedboats or any of the rest. There are a group of people, and there are some preachers in this world that are preaching, friends and brethren, because they love lost souls. Preaching because they want people to know the truth. Preaching because they want people to be in a right relationship with Jesus. And we preachers that are preaching those truths, we must expose this error, this, these shenanigans and this charlatry that's going on in the so-called religious world. And at the same time, we must tell people that Jesus Christ can do so much for you and so much for me and has done so much for every person who's in a right relationship with them. He gives us hope, friends and brethren. Isn't it terrible to live without hope? You read about that woman, I think it was in last week's uh, newspaper, where in an effort to support her drug problem, to pay the man that supplied her her crack, and to get more crack, she allowed that man to rape her 13-year-old daughter. That was her payment to that man in order for him to keep supplying her her crack. Isn't it amazing how low some people can go in this life? And it is amazing how some people can just get right down to the very depths of degradation. Isn't it amazing that a woman would sell her own daughter's body to support her addiction? We're just about out of time. I could give so many other examples along those lines. But here's what Jesus does for us, friends and brethren. You see, somebody who's in a right relationship with Jesus doesn't have to be on drugs. He doesn't have to be on crack. He doesn't have to smoke marijuana. He doesn't have to drink alcoholic beverages. He hasn't, doesn't have to refer to the things of this world that are superficial and artificial in order to get his highs in life. Because he lives with a hope beyond the temporary existence of this world. The hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began, Titus 1 and 2. And we preachers and we Christians ought to be telling people about that hope. We ought to be telling people about what Jesus did for us, about what he's still doing for us, and the hope that we have in Christ, and the hope that we have beyond the temporary existence of this life, and the sensible life that we live as Christians. Friends and brethren, we need to, as David did in Psalms 40 and 2, praise our God and praise our Savior. If you can't do that, why don't you get right with the Lord today? If you can't tell people what the Lord has done for you, why don't you do as he's commanded you to do so you can tell people what he's done for you? 
What you have to do to be in a right relationship with him, to contact his blood, is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Be baptized into him for the remission of your sins. And then live for Christ as best you possibly can. You do that, you can tell the world what Christ has done for you because he'll have saved you. Thank you so much for watching the program. May God bless all.